After a 15-year career in social work and adult education, Sharon Haywood decided she needed a break from the daily grind, not to mention the winters of Toronto. That break turned more permanent while she was traveling South America and fell in love with Buenos Aires, Argentina. But Sharon, who'd suffered an eating disorder earlier in her life, noticed some of those negative behaviors returning and started, once again, to become uncomfortable with her body. Practically every woman I know was on a diet. There was a normalization of plastic surgery that I hadn't experienced living in Toronto. Um, women would get free plastic surgeries because it was part of their um, their health care plan. Um, women would get Botox. Friends, I know, friends and friends of friends would get Botox. And I guess one of the, the things that really impacted me was I had a really hard time finding clothes to fit. Um, I'm an average size woman um, when I never had problems finding clothes in Toronto, yet I was having a lot of trouble in Buenos Aires. And the more I, I lived here and the more I talked to other women, I found that, that it was a problem that was pervasive throughout the Argentine fashion industry. So essentially, if you weren't a thin person, you weren't able to find clothes. That was the spark that ignited Sharon's activist spirit. Now, as the founder of Anybody Argentina, part of an international organization called Endangered Bodies, Sharon focuses much of her work on the clothing size issue within Argentina. Female rights crusader Sharon Haywood on this episode of Run It Like a Girl. we're recording from our studio where through technology we're talking with Sharon Haywood who is located in Argentina. Sharon thank you so much for joining us today for an episode of Run It Like a Girl. Thank you so much for having me I'm really flattered to be here. Oh I think the work that you've been doing is is really amazing and I can't wait to kind of get into it because I think that our listeners are just gonna get so much out of out of the work that you've been doing. Um, So we might as well uh, jump right in maybe uh, we can start with so if you could tell us a bit about your background and how you how you became an activist for healthy body image and then starting uh, anybody Argentina? Um, well, I'll start by saying that I'm not Argentine. I'm actually Canadian. I grew up in a suburb of Toronto, Mississauga. Um, I studied at the University of Toronto, got my Bachelor of Science in Psychology. Um, and then from there, I launched into a pretty extensive career in social work for almost 15 years where I worked with um, individuals with physical and, and intellectual handicaps, as well as their families as a caseworker. I also worked in the field of adult literacy, dealing with um, marginalized communities like women um, living on the street, as well as immigrants. And by the time I got to my early 30s, I was feeling pretty tired, <laughs> pretty <laughs> worn down and needed a big change. And um, one of the things involved in that big change was doing traveling. Um, and I also wanted to escape Toronto winters. So I combined that need with my need for a big change and started backpacking on my own through Mexico for six months. I did a trip through Southeast Asia and then I was doing a trip through South America for six months where I became captivated with Buenos Aires and decided to try um, living here for a year. I was studying Spanish and at the end of the year I decided to to continue living here. Um, so it wasn't a, um, a decision that I had planned on making, but uh, it's a decision that definitely was a turning point in my life because I do see that, or I do believe that Argentina kind of brought out the activist in me. Um, just a little bit more context. When I was in, um, throughout my adolescence and into 
you know, the first part of my 20s, I struggled with an, uh, an eating disorder. Unfortunately, I found the help to um, get me out of that um, horrible state in my late 20s. And I did a lot of work, um, personal work through therapy um, to get over um, living with an eating disorder. And by the time I started traveling, I was feeling fairly comfortable in my skin. However, after living in Buenos Aires for a while, I started to notice some of my old behaviors coming back or the desire for some older behaviors to come back. I was becoming really hyper vigilant of my appearance. Um, and I started to pay attention to what was happening. And I, I was really surprised that this was happening. I thought, you know, well, I mean, it, it could have been a reaction to culture shock and adjusting to the new community and the, the new place I was living in. However, um, when I paid closer attention to what was around me, um, practically every woman I know was on a diet. Um, there was a normalization of plastic surgery that I hadn't experienced living in Toronto. Um, women would get free plastic surgeries because it was part of their, um, their health care plan. Um, women would get Botox. Friends, I know, friends and friends of friends would get Botox. And I guess one of the, the things that really impacted me was I had a really hard time finding clothes to fit. Um, I'm an average size woman. Um, so probably around, a, a you know, sizing is always a funny thing, any country you're in, but approximately a size 8, 10, 10, 12, um, when I never had problems finding clothes in Toronto, yet I was having a lot of trouble in Buenos Aires. And the more I, I lived here and the more I talked to other women, I found that, that it was a problem that was pervasive throughout the Argentine fashion industry. So essentially, if you weren't a thin person, you weren't able to find clothes. Um, so putting all those things together, I had a real aha moment that um, the, the things that I were experiencing, the discomfort in my own body and not feeling comfortable in my skin and my desire to want to change my body was very much connected, very much directly connected to my environment. Um, so it was during this time that I started um, started writing. I was doing um, articles and doing some essays and looking for some homes for them. I've been writing personally for years and years, but never really tried to um, publish anything that I had written. Um, so it was during this process where I, you know, made this click and decided, you know, realized that it was Argentina that was triggering all this stuff. I'd done some writing and then I was trying to find a home for it. And I found two sites at the time. This was around 2009. One was called Anybody and the other one was called AdiosBarbie.com. Um, and I ended up writing for both sites. AdiosBarbie.com is an amazing site. It's the, the web's first intersectional body image site um, that's been around for uh, well over two decades now. So, the, the the tagline for the site was the body image site for everybody. And I ended up becoming co-editor for that site um, for five years. And with regards to anybody, I didn't know when I submitted my work to the anybody site, which is any any dash buddy dot org, that Susie Orbach um, was behind it. And Susie Orbach is a pioneer in the field. She wrote a book um, that is still in circulation. It actually is just re-released called Fat is a Feminist Issue. Um, where she connects a lot of um, the oppression that women experience with their own bodies and the pressures from society with a feminist discourse. Um, and like I said, it's, it's just been re-released. So Susie was the driving force behind anybody. And one thing led to another, and I ended up um, becoming a virtual member of their team. So they didn't just host a website, but they also engaged in on-the-ground activism in London, where they were based. So I helped them with their... Um, 
their virtual side of things, setting up their Facebook page and their Twitter feed. And one thing led to another and I would tell them what was happening in Argentina and, and the experiences and um, the, the pressures that women felt on a daily basis that were so normalized. Um, and also learning that Argentina had one of the highest rates of eating disorders in the world. So all of these things together and sharing it with my team in London, um, they really encouraged me to to start engaging in activism here. Um, and the kind of tipping point for that was when Susie decided to turn anybody into an international movement. And in 2011, um, Susie, in conjunction with the Women's Therapy Center Institute and her colleagues in New York, um, co-founded Endangered Bodies. And today it's an international movement with eight chapters throughout the world. Um, and we, you know, kind of our our mission is to challenge this culture that teaches us to hate our own bodies because um, we recognize that um, pretty much everybody, sadly, or almost everybody is suffering in their bodies um, because of the body they have instead of living from their bodies and enjoying their bodies. Um, we're spending so much time and energy and anxiety worrying about what we're looking like that we're, we're that they're, they're having some real health consequences. But I'd love to know how is how is it um, how has the reaction been? in Argentina through from both uh, women and men there really in in terms of our activism it's been welcomed with open arms when i started the um, our organization in 2011 there was very little online um dealing with body positivity or fat activism or anything to deal with appearance pressures um and i had to resort to finding information in english and we would translate um and now I mean, and the, the feedback that we got, we had one event um, that launched it at the time. It was called Endangered Species, Preserving the Female Body. And um, we got so much positive feedback from the women that attended saying, finally, there's somebody doing something for us. Um, you know, we feel like our bodies are wrong, that we're doing something wrong. And thank you for reaffirming that we're not the problem. Um, and today we still get that kind of feedback, um, especially in regard to um, our focus on the lack of clothing sizes, that has become a real focus for us in Argentina. Um, so women feel affirmed, and not just women, men as well. Um, as you know, on a global level, men are facing more and more pressures um, that women have historically felt. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the capitalistic society that we uh, we live in. It's kind of like the um, businesses have almost exhausted every single body part that they could um, capitalize on to make women feel bad about their bodies, you know, whether it's from sagging knees to, you know, your, your darkened armpits. Um, and so the, the male market has opened up. And so there's more pressures for, for boys and men as well. So, but overall, our, our movement attracts mostly women. Um, but generally, we only get really positive feedback and, and gratitude that, that we're here. And as well as people wanting to kind of become involved. And our, our movement is completely volunteer run. Um, so if it wasn't for um, the everyday people and the Argentines and, and some of the foreigners living in Argentina, we wouldn't be able to, to do what we're doing. I watched your uh, speech you gave at Endangered Species in, in 2011, and it was, uh, it was fantastic. Um, I was curious, you had talked there about, you know, from a company perspective, that compliance with the laws that you were lobbying to, to have implemented was a bit low. And I was wondering how things have gone since mm -hmm. then. So um, at the time, I believe when I gave that presentation, there was one law in place and it's called a size law. And a size law basically mandates that clothing shops need to 
carry um, a certain range of sizes. At the time, it was a range of six sizes. So today, seven years later, we have 14 different size laws. Um, Unfortunately, um, different provinces and municipalities. And I think that's a reflection of the increased awareness of the issue. Um, But unfortunately, all of these laws are different. Um, Some of them, they don't all deal with the same population. Some of them deal with adolescent girls. Some of them deal with adults. Some of them deal with men and women. Um, And so there's a lack of coherence among these laws, which has made compliance really, really difficult. So it wasn't long after that, um, that presentation that I gave that from an organizational perspective, we decided not to start, not to focus on compliance, because as all these new laws came up, recognizing that they're all different, we also recognized that it would be impossible or next to impossible for a national or an international clothing brand to comply mm. with so many different laws. Um, so what we've been focusing on um, activism wise is focusing on the brands that are doing something right, that are providing a wide range of sizes. So unfortunately, um, the controls when it comes to laws, and that's unfortunately not the only law that um, faces low compliance here in Argentina. It, 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 there is a bit of a systemic problem when it comes to that, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, but we've identified problems that are um, existing in these laws. We've done a lot of um, lobbying and as a, as a lot of um, collaboration and offering our services and our recommendations to different legislators um, who are interested in pushing forth a national law that will actually work and make sense. We've recognized that these laws are based on, are based on norms um, of European bodies, which kind of makes it even more complicated. So we we were lobbying a few years ago for a, a national study to actual measure Argentine bodies. So there's a lot of complicated um, factors that come into the size laws. But the one good thing that's come out of it is that there is a, a great awareness of the necessity to deal with weight discrimination in the fashion industry because it is mm-hmm. it's not just an issue of that we're not using the right norms and the, the the laws aren't coherent you know at the heart of it all there is weight discrimination and there's um we we argue that um the the ability for one to to dress oneself and to wear the clothes that they want to wear um is a human human's right human rights issue as well as we also believe that it's a health issue because we recognize even though that there aren't any studies to date that um provide a, a a clear link between lack of clothing sizes and body dissatisfaction um a lot of our research that we've done we we hold annual questionnaires um that uh, ask about size availability and how that impacts one's relationship with their body so we've created we've collected a lot of evidence um of personal evidence and personal statements and testimony that that tell us that there is a link between body dissatisfaction um and a lack of clothing sizes and we know from existing research that body dissatisfaction is a huge factor when it comes to poor body image um, the development of eating disorders, as well as other mental health conditions like depression and anxiety. Um, so, you know, the two things together, we, you know, human rights and, and health um, form the basis of, of us, um, our, our activism when it comes to lack of clothing sizes. So that's interesting. And I'd love to maybe talk a little bit about, um, you know, the whole Me Too movement that, you know, has has really come on with a bang over the last, I guess, maybe eight 
18 months, maybe even actually a little bit less. Thank goodness. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Long overdue. Long overdue. And, you know, do you see that? um, What do you think? Do you think that's going to have, what kind of long-term effect do you think Me Too movement is going to have? Do you think real change will happen? I think real change is already happening um, with the Me Too movement. I mean, no, this is such a historic moment um, when it comes to women um, talking about their experiences and talking about their body autonomy and talking about how their body autonomy has been violated and silenced um, for you know throughout history. Um, so I already think that there there is change in motion here. Um, I mean, it's created an international conversation that's unprecedented. Um, and one of the the things that I thought was really interesting when this broke and scrolling through Twitter and going through the hashtag. Um, for the for many people, it was the first time that victims have felt safe enough to tell their story, um, and many of them have told them online, you know, using the hashtag and being supported by other people. So even though it's not a completely safe space online, there is a community that's been developed that um, is supportive um, and is hearing women and, and men who are saying that you know I was raped or I was assaulted or I was sexually harassed, and they are being believed unconditionally, and then that. Is, is, is part of the foundation of Me Too because throughout history in, in, in developed countries and undeveloped countries, women or sexual assault um, survivors are not believed. You know, it's the one crime where we have to say, we have to prove that we were assaulted or we were harassed or we were raped. Um, and you don't have that same kind of of pressure with any other crime. Um, you know, you say your house was robbed and they're not going to say, well, prove it. It's like, yes, you can say that the door was broken or, you know, but, you know, I mean, really, we're not um, interrogated. Victims aren't re-victimized in the same way that sexual assault victims are. And I think Me Too has really brought that issue um, to the forefront. Um, and in terms of lasting change, I mean, there's already been concrete things that have come out of this. Um, like the development of the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund in the U.S., where it's connecting those who experience sexual harassment in the workplace with um, legal assistance. Um, and I was reading that there's been over 2,500 women that have from 60 different industries. So, you know, we're not just talking, this isn't just a Hollywood problem, even though um, the Me Too movement didn't originate out of Hollywood. It originated um, many years before by a woman named Tarana Burke um, that created the Me Too movement to create solidarity among women who had been, women in low-income communities who had been um, assaulted or, or harassed. Um, but it was it coming into the mainstream through Hollywood that's really kind of bringing brought it into the mainstream exploded it into the mainstream um so a lot of women now with this kind of support and concrete legal support they're able to change um or take more control over their narrative um which is really central in in healing individually and collectively i think and it's 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 an important step for real justice um and changes to policies and changes to laws that are are really long overdue um you know, and it's created conversations as well. And sometimes there's uncomfortable conversations. You know, one of those conversations is about consent um, and the importance of comprehensive sex education. Um, and we're seeing backlash from that. Like just recently, um, Mr. Doug Ford has said that he's going to get rid of the 200 or the 2015 sex ed curriculum and replace it with an outdated one from 98. Yep. And so that means that issues like consent, like sexting, like online bullying, those issues aren't going to be addressed. So 
you know, when I think when we see real change starting to happen, that's when we come up against the biggest resistance. And so, you know, this example with Doug Ford, yes, this this is a huge obstacle that we have to rally against. And I think that's really important, you know, when it comes to these movements is that all of us need to have our voice heard. And when we all start speaking out to, together, that collective really becomes powerful. Um, so, you know, it is it is a fight, um, but I think it's a fight that um, that can really generate some some real change, um, real and necessary change. You know, with the climate here in Ontario and even what we're seeing uh, in, in, in the United States and kind of in some ways we seem to be moving forward so much around these issues. And then in other ways, we seem to be moving way back. Um, so how yes. do you think we um, we get uh, young girls and, and women to kind of have the confidence to make sure their voice is heard, to find the support they need and to uh, to to challenge um, these type of situations? Well, I, I think, you, you know, in your question, the, the answer is there is finding that support. And I think um, finding your community, finding people that believe you, finding people who are like-minded, um, whether that's online or not, is central um, for for women to to feel like they're being, for anybody to feel like they're making a difference. Be, be, you know, we one person can make a difference, but when that one person is supported um, by others and that you know, it, it's only going to grow and become more powerful. So I think it's really, really important that um, young people use their voices. And and we are seeing that with, with the younger generations. And it gets me really, really excited for our future um, that, you know, we have young activists who are making change, um, you know, from the young activists that we saw rallying against um, gun or rallying for gun control um, after one of the mass shootings um, in the States. Um, you know, it's it's the young people that are leading the charge and we need to support them, you know, no matter what age group that we're in. Um, we need to, to, to nurture these voices and, and let them know that they, they are important and they are being heard. Um, when I was living here in Argentina and, and you know, really was feeling disconnected, from a community, it was activism that pulled me in, and and I found my I found my activist groups and my communities online, and it was the confidence of of creating those relationships online that I, I developed confidence from creating those relationships online that made me um, feel confident to go out into the real world in Buenos Aires and connect with other feminists and and create my own little movement here and connect with existing movements. Um, so community, I think, is really really key. Um, and, and supporting and, and listening to the young people, um, you know, whether they're, they're just putting up, a, you know, a, a rebellious status update on their Facebook page, they're starting a petition, they're uh, creating uh, placards to go to uh, a march, you know, we, we really need to nurture that kind of activity. So, you know, I have one final question for you. Um, I'd, sure. I'd love to know that, uh, you know, if you could go back and have lunch with, uh, you know, maybe a 19 year old version of yourself, um, what would, what would your conversation look like? What would you say? <sighs> well, um, probably early on in the conversation, I would need to tell myself that I was actually a feminist. Um, it's one of the things that I didn't own until I was living here. Um, probably not to my late thirties. Um, and when I look back on my values and what I believed in and the things I argued for and argued against, they were all feminist values. Um, but I had bought that stereotype that 
feminists are, and it's still the same stereotype 25 years later, um, 30 years later, where, you know, feminists are man-hating, hairy, smelly, ugly, horrible women. Um, And that's just not true. We, you know, this is all about, you know, political, social, and economic equality among all, all genders. Um, plain and simple. So that's definitely a conversation I would want to have with myself. And I think um, not to sound cliche, but to really trust myself more. Um, you know, I I think, you know, when you're a teen, you know, there's there's so much uncertainty and, and insecurity is, is kind of part and parcel of kind of wading through one's adolescence. Um, but really emphasize that my my instincts are, are right. Um, you know, and even if they're not right, I mean, following through with what I believe in is, is what has made me a stronger person. Um, you know, in between all the, the self-doubt and questioning that's happened along the way. So, um, definitely trusting myself more, um, and learning to develop a bit of a thick skin, um, not to take things so personally. Um, you know, there's always going to be people that don't, agree with what you're saying or don't agree with your values um, or don't agree with um, the manner in which you're you want to go about things um, and that's okay I mean people do people take different paths to to get to the same destination um, try not to pay too much attention to the naysayers well Sharon I just I I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us and to be on an episode and uh, it's been absolutely wonderful so thank you Thank you so much, Bonnie. I think this is a really uh, excellent initiative. I've loved the title of your your podcast, and I'm really looking forward to um, seeing all the or listening to all the other interviews that you've got lined up. So, thank you again. I was it was really an honor to be included. Run it like a girl is hosted by Bonnie Moak. Brian Long is the producer. Web design and technical assistance provided by Dan Moak, and music courtesy of the talented Brooklyn Gillichuk. On the next episode of Run It Like a Girl. Making the transition from the military to civilian life can be a monumental challenge, especially for those suffering from the physical and mental scars of their service to Canada. That's where Megan McDonald and the True Patriot Love Foundation come into play. Megan is in charge of fundraising for the not-for-profit's major expeditions, including the most recent to Mount Everest. Megan McDonald talks about overcoming challenges, on the next episode of Run It Like a Girl.